We're glad you're here. Um, it was, uh, as you heard earlier, Ben started on Thursday uh, a three-month sabbatical, and so we had a few options. We could just cancel services and uh, figure something else out. We could replay some old videos of him preaching from his early days, um, or we could just keep on going, and so that's what we're going to do. We're just going to keep on going. I'm pretty excited. After the first, I remember on his First, it's every five years, there's a required three-month sabbatical, which as a pastor, that's just ridiculous. It's amazing. It blows my mind that that's in our Constitution and bylaws. It's a ridiculous blessing. But I remember when he left for the first, the, his first sabbatical, and we all kind of looked at him and said, what are we going to do? And the general consensus was, I, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to look like. And I'm so thankful that this time, uh, as he's on his sabbatical suffering right now on the sandy shores of the Gulf, um, uh, I'm thankful that, man, the, the preaching schedule is done through the end of the year, and y'all are going to get to hear from a handful of um, spirit-led deacons who are going to preach, and uh, you'll have to deal with Brad and I as well, but I'm also excited about the deacons who are going to be preaching, so um, thank y'all for being here. Uh, I'm excited about where we're going to be in the next few weeks. Today, we're going to be beginning a new series titled Faith During Faithlessness. Faith during faithlessness. Um, over the next four weeks, I'm going to be preaching expositionally over First and Second Samuel. First and Second Samuel. Um, I have the privilege here at Crosspoint of teaching on Wednesday nights, and what we're doing is we're keeping a pace on Wednesday nights where I'm teaching through, uh, trying to teach the entire Bible every four years, and so we move fairly quickly in order to be able to do that. And every now and again, as I'm teaching, there's there's chunks of scripture where I'm just like, man, I would love to preach that because there's a difference between the teaching and the preaching. And so um, First and Second Samuel was one of those chunks of scripture that I began to be excited about preaching through. So um, that's where we're going to be this morning. So let's pray together and then we'll dive into our text. Lord, we are thankful uh, that you are King of kings, Lord of lords. We're thankful uh, that you're a God of comfort thankful that you are perfect and unchanging. We're thankful that we can sing, that we cry out to you, we we call out to you, and you indeed come to our rescue. You don't ever abandon your children, and I'm so thankful for that. Lord, when we gather for corporate worship and we engage the word, when we sing, this time is about you, because you are great. And you are greatly to be praised, and your greatness is unsearchable. Yet by the power of the Spirit, you give us the opportunity to search, to search out that greatness to some extent. We won't know it fully until we're with you in eternity. But we can be blessed by it in, in the here and the now. And so I pray that that would happen this morning. Lord, I pray for Ben, for Christy, for Evan, for Luke, for Daniel, as they're on sabbatical. Um, I'm so blessed by that family, and I'm so blessed by the ministry that you have accomplished through Ben in the last decade. And I, I pray genuinely that you would bless them while they're away. I pray for the two things which were the impetus behind even putting this thing together, and that's rest and growth. Help them to rest well in Christ. Help them to rest well in the Word. Keep them from the lie of trying to just rest and rest. I do pray that they would kick back and disengage, but help them to rest in the right things. Then I pray for growth. I pray for growth in their family. I pray for growth uh, for Ben and Christy as parents. I pray for uh, growth for Evan and Luke and Daniel as, as uh, children and as, as followers of Christ. 
I pray for growth in their marriage. I pray for growth in Ben as a pastor, that as I know he's got a stack of books he's wanting to read while he's gone, that you would bless him in that and guide his heart and his mind in, in, the, in those things. Lord, we pray that you would bless our time this morning. You are so good, and uh, that I get to talk about that this morning is a, is a privilege. Please um, grab our hearts and our minds and allow us to be focused and engaged. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may remember uh, that we spent eight years in the book of John, so you, you might be thinking to yourself, how are we going to preach expositionally through First and Second Samuel in four weeks? Um, most of you know that's 55 chapters, and so that's, that's, uh, that's a, a bit of a quick pace. So to answer that, before we dive into the text, I want to consider two definitions of expositional preaching. That's one of those non-negotiables that we have here at Crosspoint. We're going to preach through the Word. The Word is living. The Word does things that a man cannot do. It, it, it says things, and it does so in a way that an individual person cannot accomplish. And so we will always go to the Word, and we will always preach through the Word. And so to make sure that you understand that we're staying true to that um, that conviction that the Lord has placed on us, I want us to look at two definitions of expositional preaching. The first definition is one that you've heard from Ben, and it's called low crawling. Um, he's, he's a military guy, and you've heard him explain the low crawling, where you've got your face in the dirt, you're moving slowly, and you're not missing a single detail. And that has blessed this body immensely over the last decade. And so that's one definition of expository preaching. Another definition um, that's a little bit more broad and what we're going to be adopting for the next few weeks is that the point of the text needs to be the point of your sermon. So whether you're looking at one verse or whether you're looking at a book, whatever the point is that God has there, that needs to be the point of your sermon. And we can only take that approach in humility knowing that we cannot plumb the depths of the word. Um, I, I do not speak as a final authority on much of anything. And so when we're done with First and Second Samuel, it's not going to be one of those, all right, well, that's the final word on that. Y'all are probably never going to need to read that again because we, we covered that. Um, it always goes deeper. And so we approach the word humbly, but we want to see what God has to say. And we want to stay true uh, to his purposes in these things. So um, that'll be our approach for the next week. The point of our time together will hopefully make clear God's point to some extent in First and Second Samuel. So turn to First Samuel with me if you haven't already done that. Uh, this book opens with the story of the birth of, you may have guessed it, Samuel. And it's the life of Samuel that we're going to consider today. A man, uh, a man named Elkanah had two wives, which men just, that's never a good idea. I just want to say that off the bat. And one of them was named Hannah. Hannah was barren. And because of this, she was tormented and mocked by the other wife. Some of y'all sitting here have struggled with barrenness. And you know the pain and the, the, the seriousness that goes along with that and the heartache, imagine what it would be like to be compounded by another wife tormenting and mocking you because of it. Climb into the text with me. Let's feel the heartache of what's going on here. It's very, very real, and in this dark backdrop, we're gonna see God do some amazing things. So um, look with me at verses six through 11 in chapter one. 1 Samuel 1, 6. And her rival, so Hannah's rival, um, the, the other wife, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. That's an evil thing to, to see something that the Lord has done and to mock someone because of it. That's, that's an evil thing. 
So we just want to make sure we call evil evil. We'll come back to that later. Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? He, he kind of does the typical husband thing, like, aren't I enough? And she's like, no. <laughs> and in verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. We're going to be looking at four different lives as ordained by God over the next four weeks. We're going to be looking, or three different lives over four weeks. We're going to look at Samuel this week. We're going to look at Saul next week, and then we're going to spend two weeks looking at the life of David, because David, um, there's no other king besides Jesus who has as much included in the word as David. So we're going to spend two weeks on that. But what we see here is a prayer from Hannah. And the Lord answers Hannah's prayers. <coughs> and she names the child Samuel. If you're taking notes, write down that the word Samuel, the name Samuel means the Lord hears. As well, <coughs> she keeps her promise. And after the child is weaned, she takes him to Eli the priest that he would serve the Lord. Now, I want you to understand that we're going all the way back to the birth of Samuel because this isn't just a character study. I'm wanting to know what God did in the entire life of Samuel. How did it start? What was God's plan from the get-go? What was, what was God doing? What did he have in store when Hannah couldn't bear a child? When Hannah was there being provoked and weeping bitterly and calling out to God, what was it that God had in store? Because what I want you all to know this morning while we're looking at Samuel, while we're going to look at Saul, while we're going to look at David, this is about God. It's always about God, always has been, always will be. And so that's why we're starting with the birth. It's like, well, how can you study his character as a baby? Well, you can't, but you can look at God's plan and his purpose and be blessed by it. So that's why we're starting where we're at. It's not just a character study. So she keeps her word to the Lord because the Lord kept her word to her, his word to her. I'm getting my pronouns mixed up, bear with me. I've only had one cup of coffee. The Lord keeps his word to her. And so she says, I will take that child to the temple and he will serve you. She keeps her promise, and as the child is weaned, she takes him to Eli the priest, that he would serve the Lord. And that's how it all begins with Samuel. An unlikely birth of an unlikely child who will now serve the Lord with Eli the priest. Y'all in the story? An unlikely birth of an unlikely child who will now serve the Lord with Eli the priest. In chapter 2, we hear this song. Go ahead and turn over to chapter 2, this song and this prayer and this recounting from Hannah. And I want, I want you to look at part of that with me. Look at verses 2 through 8 as she sings about what just happened um, and what the Lord has done. Verses 2 through 8 says this. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly, other wife. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased 
to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. It's a hard verse. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. I want you to consider for a moment how much more Samuel was treasured because of the affliction that Hannah experienced. If you're in some sort of affliction right now, some sort of circumstance where there's uncertainty, there's heartache, there's pain, it's helpful for us to look at things like this and say, man, Samuel was treasured all the more because of the affliction that Hannah faced as well. Consider that this song is about much more than a child, right? She didn't pray for the child, get the child, and then write a song about the child, right? What we see here is a woman, Hannah, apparently learned a lot about herself, and she apparently learned a lot about God through her struggle, and that's, that's the point of her song. It's not just, I finally got a son, how awesome is this? It's, God, there's no one like you. God, in, in this affliction that I've gone through and I've kept my eyes on you, and though, though heartache was very real, I would pray to you, you answered my prayers, and I'm going to keep my word, and I'm going to give you this son, and he will serve you all the days of your life. And as I sing this song, I want you to know, I'm so thankful for my son, but God, I'm more thankful for you. I'm more thankful for how true you are to your purposes and your promises. I'm more thankful for the way that you have moved. So this song shows that it's not just about the baby. It's about what she's learned about herself. It's about what she's learned about her God. And that's very important to keep an eye on as we continue to move through the story. So Samuel, whose life we're going to consider today, has been born and he's been dedicated to the temple. But it's important for us to understand what scenario he has been born into Uh, If you know anything about the history of Israel, I mean, it is up and down and up and down and up and down, good seasons, bad seasons, good king, bad king. Right now, what Samuel is being born into is a pretty dark day for Israel. Samuel is the last judge of Israel. The time of the judges comes before the time of the kings, and Samuel is the judge that wraps up the time of the judges and bridges the gap to get to the time of the kings. God will use him in this time of transition to the era of the kings. The ESV uh, study Bible actually refers to Samuel as the kingmaker. It's kind of a cool title. Um, Samuel was one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, and his ministry occurs in the dark days of Israel. Again, if you know any of Israel's history, you know that they were chosen by God to be his people. Through Abraham, the nation was blessed, and after a few hundred years of being enslaved to Egypt, God draws them out caused them to the promised land. And this was to be a time of forward movement for the nation of Israel, where Israel would exercise dominion over the nations that they would encounter. Because of what the plan was here, they were warned against worldliness. They were warned against mingling with the culture and just looking the same as they were set apart to show the great glory of the one true God. That was what was unique about Israel. There was no other God. There was one true God, and he was the king of Israel. And this was unique for them. And they were, they were to live in such a manner that put that on display. But Samuel was born into a time where the nation has been descending into moral anarchy. They're spiraling into a state of disorder because they are not recognizing the authority of God. And I want you to know that's usually how it happens. Stop recognizing the authority of God, and you will, you'll lose your moral compass. Stop recognizing the authority of God. And one thing that we see in the Bible is that 
as you turn on God, it's really just a matter of time before we turn on each other. Over and over again, a theme you will see as you read through is you see people shun God, turn on him, disobey his ways, and before you know it, they hate each other too. And so this is normally how it works. This is where Israel is right here. They're spiraling into a state of disorder because they are not recognizing the authority of God. Imagine what it would be like in our community here in Greenville if everyone just decided, I'm not going to recognize the authority of the law. I'm going to do whatever I want. Think about the disorder that would ensue. There'd be a lot of car wrecks, probably a lot of anger, a lot of fights, a lot of theft. It would be just a matter of time before it's a mess. And that's what happened with the nation of Israel because they are turning on God. So the deep concern at hand is not just their behavior. The deep concern at hand during this time in the history of Israel is their worship of God. The possibility is that the worship of God is going to just crumble and fall away, and it's going to stop happening, and they're not going to be fulfilling the purpose that God put them on earth for. They're not going to be fulfilling the purpose that they were called out for. So let's look at how God calls and uses Samuel to lead well and to set an example during a very, very difficult season. Look at chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Look at that. We already covered two, three chapters. We're moving good. 3, verses 4 through 10. Then the Lord called Samuel. Now, Samuel is with Eli right now. He, he's in the, in the house of the priest. He's been dedicated to do that work, and he's at Eli's place. And the Lord called to Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And, and Samuel ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So that tells us this is a pretty significant moment, a pretty significant transition. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called my name. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and laid down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling at other, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Just th- th- consider that for a moment. And the Lord came and stood, the Lord calling Samuel. There's nothing small about what's going on here. Like, I've been trying to think through ways where I could just accentuate this without yelling. And all I've got is yelling. So if I start yelling during this time, y'all will know, man, this is amazing. The Lord stood and called Samuel, Samuel. His voice is probably deeper than mine, but he did that. Samuel. And Samuel said, speak. Where your servant hears. This anxiousness to listen typifies Samuel's life. The anthem of Samuel is listen and obey. I'm sort of telling you the end of the sermon before I get there, the punchline of the joke before I deliver it. Like the spoiler alert, the point of today is gonna be listen and obey because your God is a good God who calls to his children. So listen and obey. This is what we hear at the beginning of Samuel's ministry. Him listen, his, this anxiousness to listen typifies the way he will move from here on out. Yes, Lord, what are you saying, Lord? I want to hear your servant is here, and I'm listening. And it is what we will hear at the end of his ministry as well. So Samuel is called by God, and then in the next few chapters, 
Israel faces some significant hardships. A lot of times things get worse before they get better. We will pray to God, Lord, just make it better right now. But what we will be sobered up in as we read our Bibles is a lot of times things will get worse. Things will be hard for maybe an elongated season before they get better. And Samuel's called by God in the next few chapters. Israel has one of those difficult seasons and they face some significant hardship because of their sin. Eli's sons, Phineas and Hophni, turn out to be worthless. How much of a bummer is that? That your, your, word, your names are included in the Bible, but it's because you're worthless sons. They were worthless because they didn't listen and obey. We can't go into their life too much today, but in short, they were worthless and considered worthless as, remember, this is breathed out by God. There's not just some overbearing other author who's saying, those guys are worthless. It's the Lord your God who's saying, Phineas and Hophni were worthless because they didn't listen and obey. So he had these worthless sons, Eli did, and um, the Philistines capture the ark, which represents, as we know, the presence and the power of God. And I'm not making this up. This is what the word says. Eli was old and fat, and after hearing about the death of his sons and the capturing of the ark, he falls out of his chair and breaks his fat neck, and he dies. That's what happened to Eli. He was old, he was fat, he hears about the death of his sons, and he's so overwhelmed with grief, he falls out of his chair, he breaks his neck, and he dies. What a way to go. And look what happens. It's almost as if God is walking out on the nation right now. It's almost like God is, I mean, the ark is captured. This priest that's important dies in a really horrible way. His sons die. And it looks like, it would appear, at least on surface, as if God is walking out on this nation that has turned their back on him. But God shows his power by chumping Dagon. Y'all have heard the story where they set the ark next to the little Dagon god and it falls down and its arms are broken, its legs are broken, all it has is a torso and the Philistines go in and they have that sad sort of chumped moment of having to pick up their god. Anytime you have to pick up your god off the floor, it's not a good god, it's not a strong god, it's not a powerful god when you have to pick it up off the floor and set it back up on its little pedestal so you can worship it. And ultimately, the presence of the ark causes a lot of problems for them. There's people getting sick. They're getting all sorts of crazy stuff on their body. And they're saying, wow, let's give the ark back. We thought, how awesome would it be to capture the ark? Man, forget the ark. We don't want it. Let's give it back. So they do. And the Philistines ultimately return the ark and are chumped by the power of God, even when God's people were faithless. That's something we need to remember. God's always faithful. He always accomplishes his purposes. We fail. We fall short. He doesn't. That's why we look to him. That's why we trust him. So, chapter 7, we see Samuel. Go ahead and turn over to chapter 7. We see Samuel leading Israel in national repentance, away from idolatry, and at the same time winning a great victory over the Philistines. Just let's read that aloud. Chapter 7, verses 3 through 13. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, remember, he's a judge. Samuel says to all the house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. Confession. 
And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines, lowercase lords, went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So here they are praying to God. The Philistines say, yeah, they're all in one place. Let's go get them. And they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as Bethkar, which we know is far. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer, which means stone of help. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Go Samuel, that was good, right? God did something awesome through Samuel. Go God, that's bigger because Samuel's nothing without him. But this is a good moment for Samuel. As a leader, it's good. You just led the nation in national repentance as well as whipping up on the Philistines. That's good. And you did it through prayer, which is even cooler. No one had to die. So here, what we're seeing is um, uh, Samuel leads this. And I want you to notice that the way that Samuel addresses the nation, I want you to notice the way that he addresses them. Pay attention to see from this point forward if he ever changes his tune, because he doesn't. As well, I want you to take notice of what Samuel does when he realizes the Philistines are attacking. What does he do? He goes to the Lord, and he seeks the Lord's help. So Samuel has judged Israel. And a major shift to a new era of the kings is about to take place in chapter 8. Y'all see where we're at? He's leading them in this repentance. They have a victory over the Philistines. The ark is back in place. God is using Samuel in a mighty way. And now chapter 8 is going to bring us to this shift, a shift in the thinking of Israel and a shift in the era of the judges to the era of the kings. Look at chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet, sadly, his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. That doesn't make a good judge. Do y'all want a judge who would take bribes and a judge who would pervert justice? Nobody wants that. And his sons did a, dishonored the Lord in the way that they moved there. Then all the elders of, the, of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. It was a big shift. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. 
according to all the deeds that they have done from the, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So, he's going to show them the ways of the king who will reign over them. The question we have to consider is that in asking for a king, how is Israel rejecting God? In asking for a king, how is Israel rejecting God? And the answer is, is the reason behind their desire for a king. They wanted to be like the other nations. Do y'all see what's happening here? They said, make us a king like all the other nations. And their desire to be like all the other nations was a rejection of God as their king. Do y'all see that? I want, I want us to see that. Their desire to want to be like all the other nations was a rejection of God as their king. This is sad irony. They were supposed to be different. They were a massive nation that had no earthly king. They would have looked crazy comparatively, and that's good. Every other nation that would look on this would be like, how are all of these people moving forward and doing these things, and they don't even have a king? They would have looked like freaks, and it would have been good. It would have been pleasing to the Lord. And here they say, no, we want to look like the others. They were supposed to be different. They were a massive nation that had no other earthly king because it pointed to the power and to the presence of their heavenly king. And again, in 822, God says to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Now, what, what's going on here? Is it evil for them to want a king? Yes. I forget it's not a Wednesday night. I'm waiting for the feedback. Is it evil for them to want a king? Yes. Is, is God going to give them a king? What's going on here? How, how do I make sense of this? It's evil for them to want a king, and God says, obey their voice and give them a king. Have you ever considered that God will sometimes grant our requests as part of his punishment of us? You ever considered that? Have you ever gotten what you wanted and realized I should not have wanted that thing? Have you ever gotten what you were pursuing, a treasure other than God, and you got that thing? God's sovereign over everything. Have you ever gotten there and said, man, I should never have gone down that road? And that was the thing that showed you I need to repent. I need to turn. Have you ever considered that God will grant our requests as part of his punishment of us? Have you ever considered that it is a great sin to want to be just like the rest of the world? This is a huge struggle for us. We talk about being different, but sometimes we leave this place and we're not any different. We look just the exact same as our culture we live in. Have you ever considered it's a great sin to want to be just like the rest of the world? It's the same for us today. The book of Romans calls us the new Israel and the children of the promise. And for us to desire to simply blend in, for us to desire to simply blend in, to have the same goals to have the same aspirations, to have the same desires as the rest of the world is to abandon our calling as ambassadors. Y'all see that? Some of us really need to stop right now and say, have I abandoned my calling as an ambassador of God? What filled up your week? How much time did you give to the Lord? This is not a guilt trip. This is an urge to listen and obey. Are, are we just doing the same things just because it's what everyone else around us is doing? I, as I'm preaching this sermon, as I prepared to preach this sermon, I have fallen under heavy conviction on some things. 
it's, this is sort of a Christianity 101 kind of a question. But every time you ask it, it's like, I need to look at that. I need to consider where I am. And am I serving the Lord wholeheartedly? Or does he just have a small portion of my heart because I've given it to a thousand other things? It's a sin for us to desire to simply blend in. What is needed during such a time is the very thing that God provides to his people through Samuel. What's needed when we have that struggle? Well, what's needed is what God provides through Samuel. Samuel is a good leader because he does not trust the goodness of man. For some of us, that's difficult. Samuel was a great leader because he didn't trust the goodness of man. He trusted the goodness of God. Our view of mankind will always reflect our view of leadership structures. Our view of mankind will always reflect our view of leadership structures. You believe in the depravity and the fallenness of man, you will prefer authority to be diffused. That means you want it to be spread out. For those who believe in the fallenness and the depravity of man, a plurality of wisdom is held in high regard. Because of this belief, we're we're an elder-led body. Ben's not trustworthy enough to be the single pastor king monarch. Amen. (laughs) And neither is Scott or Brad or anybody else. Because we believe that God is trustworthy, we're going to go with his model. And what you'll see him do again and again and again and again and again and again and again is having multiple people leading his people. Shepherds, what he calls them. And so we're an elder-led body because of that. If I was ever asked to be a lead pastor somewhere, I I would have to say, no, I'm depraved. My heart is deceitful above all else. I'm going to need more accountability than that. You don't want that to happen. And anyone who thinks that they can handle that, I would caution them. I mean, I'm aware that people listen online. I would caution, man, if you are leading out in front by yourself, I would do a gut check there and consider, would it be more wise and more in keeping with God's design to have accountability and to have a plurality of wisdom, to have an abundance of counselors? So um, he's a good leader, Samuel is, because he doesn't trust the goodness of man, he trusts the goodness of God. Samuel's life epitomizes the words that he speaks to Saul in chapter 15. Turn with me there. Y'all see that? We just got through 15 chapters of text expositorily. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) There are some details we didn't cover. I would urge you to maybe go read through 1 Samuel. It'd be good since we're going to be there for a couple weeks. Look at chapter 15, verses 19 through 22. (laughs) These are the words um, that Samuel speaks to Saul. We'll, We'll look at the life of Saul and what God does there next week, but... Uh, We're going to look more closely next week, but it's worth looking at this encounter today because of what God's doing through Samuel, 19 through 22 in chapter 15. Saul has rejected um, the Lord's design, and Saul has gone against what Samuel told him he should do. And Samuel says this, "'Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord?' Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? He was supposed to go and wipe out this entire area, but, but instead he took all the good stuff. And, and Saul, Samuel's saying, Saul, why did you do that? Why did you not listen and obey and done what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed 
the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But there shouldn't be a but right there. That should not be there. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. I robbed that liquor store to give unto the Lord. I stole that wallet because I felt it would bless the church. You don't do that. You can't be a blessing by disobeying. It doesn't work like that. And so here, Samuel's calling Saul out. If we desire to be a blessing to others, as Samuel is to Israel, we must always urge obedience. Fathers, happy Father's Day, by the way. Let this be a sober reminder for you on Father's Day. Circumstances will never trump the need to obey. Circumstances will never trump the need to obey. You will never find yourself in a setting where you can say, I think obedience to God would be the second best thing right now. It's never the second best thing. You will never find yourself in that setting. It is glorifying and pleasing to God to always urge obedience in those who claim to belong to him. Urge obedience. If it's a Christian who's not walking in the light of the gospel, urge obedience. If it's a non-believer, urge obedience. Encourage them in truth. Samuel knew this because he listened to God. That's why Samuel did this. Samuel looked at Saul, who is a king, and said, you need to obey God. The only reason Samuel would do that is because Samuel listened to God. His life was marked by it. I think that a good question for us to consider this morning is, are you listening closely enough to God that you're able to obey and lead others in obedience? I'll ask it again. Are you listening closely enough to God that you are able to obey and to also lead others in obedience? You have to know that this kind of listening cannot be achieved by simply listening to a preacher once a week. We need to be careful with this. I in no way want to diminish the importance of a steady diet of the preached word. My goodness, we have trumpeted that loudly from this pulpit for a decade. You can't replace it. You can't replace the steady diet of listening to the preached word and gathering as God's people and listening to what the Lord has to say through, through a feeble, common, fragile person. We have to do that regularly. It's God's design. It cannot be replaced. However, even the preached word cannot be delivered well and truthfully by the pastor who has no devotional life. I want you to hear that. That's a welcome to you to hold us accountable. Even the preached word cannot be delivered well and it cannot be delivered truthfully from a true heart from a pastor who does not have a devotional life. As I have looked at the life of Samuel, I find myself convicted about treasure. I find myself convicted about treasure. As believers, you know that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Probably half of y'all are thinking of the kids' song from last year's deal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Samuel clearly treasures the word of the Lord. He knows the history of Israel, and he looks forward to Israel's future. He has nothing better to say to lead them than the word of the Lord. He treasures it. Do you? It is complete dependence. It has been said that once something is your treasure, it will command your desires 
and it will shape your behavior. Think about that. Once something's your treasure, it'll command your desires and it'll shape your behavior. What's commanding your desires right now? What's shaping your behavior right now? Do you treasure the word of the Lord? Do you have a desire to spend uninterrupted time in it? And have you formed the behavioral disciplines to do so regularly, even daily? Before Samuel turns the power over to Saul, he gives this farewell address a few chapters before in 12. Turn to chapter 12. <coughs> Samuel treasures the word of the Lord. This is the end of his ministry as a judge over Israel. We're moving into the era of the kings. And in chapter 12, he gives this sort of farewell address. And most of your Bibles will even say Samuel's farewell address. This will be the last piece of his life that we're going to look at this morning. Sermon may come in under an hour. Happy Father's Day. Look at verses 13 through 15 in chapter 12. Remember how Samuel's life started. Remember how his ministry started. Listen and obey. Listen and obey. And look at how it comes to a close in his farewell. Verse 13. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey him, obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your new king. It's a pretty bold words, right? He's talking to a king. The first king, the guy who's going to come in there and sweep up, clear things and change things. And he's speaking boldly. If, if Samuel's like a broken record. Listen and obey. Listen and obey. Listen and obey. And if you don't, if you're not listening and obey, listen and obey. That, that's, that's the message of his life. As I was preparing the sermon, I was like, that is not like catchy. I wish I had something catchy or something cool or something more profound, something like I've never heard that before. But guess what the point of the day is? Listen and obey. Listen and obey. Look at how it blessed an entire nation of sinful Israelites through Samuel. Look at what God did with that. Listen and obey. And he doesn't simply tell this to the people of Israel, but also to the new king of Israel. The new king is not exempt from the command of the Lord. Remember what, what he was told to do before? Tell the king of his ways that he's supposed to walk in. That's what God told Samuel. When we appoint this king, you're going to tell that king what he's supposed to do. So what we have to see here is that the new king is not exempt from the commandment of the Lord. In fact, from the get-go, the king of Israel is to be subject to the word of God. You will see great heartache in the nation of Israel when the king of Israel is not subject to the word of God. But from the get-go, that was his purpose. That was his point. That was what, was what he was called upon to do by the king of kings, by the Lord of lords. He was, he was told to serve and to be subject to the word of God. While his message does not change, Samuel's message does not change, I do want to point out, Samuel's not just some emotionless robot. I worry about this. 
the word warns us that as we grow in knowledge, we can become puffed up. And what that means is that you can grow in your understanding, you can, you can see new things in Scripture, you can really cherish them. You can, you can relish the word of the Lord. You can enjoy it. And then you can turn around and just bark it at people. You can turn around and be harsh with people. You can turn around with that knowledge and it has puffed you up and you find yourself looking down at people and telling them, zip it, I have something to say. And that's not good. So I want us to see here that Samuel's not just this emotionless robot. Oh, listen and obey. I'm a judge. Oh, y'all have a problem? You should listen and obey. He goes beyond that. He doesn't simply bark orders. He cares deeply about the well-being of his brothers and sisters in the Lord. Do you? Do you care deeply about the well-being of those you're sitting with this morning? How often do you pray for others? He cares deeply about those that he is walking with, those that are his brethren. Remember, Samuel was a judge for the better part of a few decades. You won't walk into many courtrooms and hear a judge say, what? That's not fair. If you hear that, it's a unique circumstance. I can guarantee it. But judges don't do that. Judges don't get all emotional necessarily and, and just start speaking on emotion. They, they have a purpose that they're there for. Now, they can get emotional. Again, remember, we're not emotionless robots. But you won't walk into a courtroom. That's not fair. Rather, what does he do? Just think about a current courtroom. He listens to the details. He listens to the circumstances. He listens to the scenarios. And a judge listens to the perspectives of those involved. And then he applies the law to it. It's not this wishy-washy thing where it's like, I can't believe you did that. Go sit in the corner. It's not that. It's listen to the details. Listen to the scenario. Listen to the perspectives of the people involved. And then what you do is you take that scenario and you apply the law to it. So Samuel's job as a judge for years and years would have been to listen to the people and their perspectives and apply God's word to it. You see what he did as a judge? I want to make sure that we understand the calling that was placed on his life. When Hannah dropped him off with Eli, he had an important role, and he was going to be listening to the things that they were sorting through, and he was going to help God's people apply God's word to those circumstances. It's a good reminder for us today that listening to others does not jeopardize our message. Do y'all know that? Listening to others does not jeopardize our message. Now, if you never speak the message, yeah, that will jeopardize it. But listening to others, understanding where they're at, we're called to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. But for many of us, when it comes to speaking truth into another's life, especially one who doesn't seem to be listening to us, we become impatient and angry and have little interest in what they have to say. However, it's in those emotional moments where people will reveal their hearts to you. You need to know their story. You need to know what they treasure. And God does much of his work through daily relationships. I want you to know this last year I was able to go to a conference uh, up north in some place there, and um, it was on conflict resolution. <laughs> and I've always taken an approach that um, 
up until this last year. I'm a different man now. I want y'all to know this. But um, I would take an approach where if someone's miserable, things are horrible, I'd be like, okay, cool. Let's not talk about that. Let's move on to something better. Like, like okay, this relationship is messed up. It's all horrible. Okay, cool. Let's talk about what the Lord says about this. Let's, let's jump to forward because this stinks. I don't even like listening to it. I'm a changed man. I'm a, I'm a better pastor, I think, after the conference. But I remember the person leading the conference said, you should care about how people feel. And I just remember being like, huh, well, isn't that neat? I should care about how people feel. But because in my mind, I'm thinking, well, if you feel miserable, let's stop focusing on the stuff that makes you feel miserable, and let's look at God because he's really good. And sometimes that would cause me, to, to be truthful, it would cause me to rush counseling or to rush a conversation where I needed to sit and listen because what I found there is they looked at it as, I need to understand why you feel how you feel so that I can help you move into a healthier place. I need to understand what you treasure so I can hold before you a much better treasure. I need to understand what's tripping you up so I can help you become disentangled from that snare and to move forward in Christ's likeness. It was a sober and a humbling moment for me because I sat there saying, huh, I should care about how they feel. And I felt like a big jerk and I needed to feel like a big jerk. It happened again when I was engaging this text. I'm looking at Samuel. Samuel addressed the people and when he did, he would include details about their history. Why? Because he sees it as his history. When you begin to speak a message to other people that you think you don't need anymore, it loses its oomph. When you begin to talk to others in a way where you're like, you need this, I don't. That, that's, that's hypocrisy. When Paul saw himself as the foremost of sinners, he didn't say, well, I guess I'm done. I'm not going to talk anymore. I'm foremost of sinners. He would urge others to walk in and to listen and to obey to the very things that he needed. And Samuel, when Samuel addressed the people, he would include details about their history. He would include details about what God has done for them. He would share the words of the Lord, and he would urge them to walk in them. There's a whole section where Samuel's so familiar with the years and years and years of of the history. If If you're ever called to the mission field, don't just think you're taking Jesus there. God's been doing things there for a long time. You need to get there. You need to know that story. You need to hear the story of that people. You need to know where they are. You need to be able to see what God has done. You need to see what they treasure. And then you need to speak to them in truth and in love and to urge them to walk in the words of the Lord. Let's continue reading verse 16 through 25 in this farewell address. 1 Samuel 12, 16. Now therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. It is, not, is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking for yourselves a king. You just see what's going on here. You're going to get a king, but I want you to see how wicked it is that you ask for one. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. He doesn't say, Do not be afraid. It's not so bad. He says, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. 
Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Here it is again. Listen and obey. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they're empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, this blows my mind right here. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. When you speak truth to others, there will be parts that will seem direct, harsh maybe, and there will parts that will overwhelm them with a love that they don't understand. What you're doing in those moments is you are lavishing upon someone else what's been lavished upon you. And you should take joy in that. But you can't minimize what's going on when people sin. Here he is saying, I will pray for you because you're wicked. I won't make the sin of not praying for you because, because what you've done is evil. And I want to urge you to follow the Lord from here on. But I want you to know that if you don't, you and your new king are going to be swept away. He speaks so truthfully to them because he cares for them, because he loves them immensely, and mostly because he trusts the goodness of God over their goodness. Samuel characterizes some of the best things about godly leadership. If we were to follow his example, we will give ourselves to studying, to praying through, and obeying God's word, and we'll also give ourselves to conversations that aren't rushed. We'll give ourselves to encounters with others where we don't constantly think about the other more important things we need to be doing. And there are two important things that we'll do that we see in what we just read. The first thing is this. One who speaks truth and leads well will always call evil, evil. This is important. One who speaks truth and leads well will always call evil, evil. From Romans 8, which Morris is going to be preaching on in a few weeks, we know that God works all things together for good, for kingdom good. But when he does, we do not have to call evil something else. This is important. Some sitting in this room find themselves conflicted. Some of y'all are thinking about evil things you've been through. Some sitting in this room find themselves conflicted because you know that God is completely sovereign, but you also know that you've been wronged horribly. You know that God is completely sovereign, but you've seen some pretty horrible things happen to people. You know that God is completely sovereign, but you know some serious heartache that either you've experienced or those that you love have experienced. And you're saying, I know he's sovereign, but what do I do with all this evil? When people transgress God and give their hearts to other treasure, it is evil. And those who do such things need to know that. In Romans, Paul poses a question to those who are realizing that where we sin, grace abounds. And he's in what's called a diatribe, and, he, and he, he's asking these questions and sort of setting up these conversations and answering the questions themselves. And, and when they say, so should we sin all the more so that grace abounds? I mean, if God works all things for good, should I just sin a whole lot so that grace can abound and God can be good in those things? And he says, by no means. Why does he say by no means? Well, because sin is evil. It's evil. 
We cannot get to a point where we call it something else. We have names that we have given to things that water it down. We call extramarital affairs extramarital affairs as opposed to adultery. We call um, getting a little rough with someone, something about you, you, you're, you're going against God. We give different names to different things to lighten them, and we have to remember to always call evil evil. And those who do such things need to know that it is evil. It was an evil thing to ask for a king. That's what we're seeing this morning with Israel. It was an evil thing to ask for a king. God's going to use it for good, but they need to know it's an evil thing. The new king himself needs to know it was an evil thing that they asked for you. The people needed to know it. The new king needed to know it. And when someone sins against God and it appears that God has changed things and turned things for kingdom good, it doesn't excuse their sin. There still has to be an urging toward repentance and listening and obeying. To continue to call that sin evil is to lift their eyes from circumstances and situations and place them upon an unchanging God. And in doing so, that will hopefully lead them in repentance. It is not a matter of minimizing God's goodness or crashing the party. Rather, it's a matter of sobering up the mind of the worshiper so that they can see the goodness of God even in the midst of their own evil actions. That's what I want for us. We can't sit here and say, we'll never do anything evil again. That's what you should pursue. You should try to live a life of worship. But when we, when we don't and when we fail and we fall, I want you to always see God's goodness. And I want that to lead you to repentance. I want you to see the, the lavish blessing that has been placed upon you in Christ. And I want you to see his goodness. And I want you to say, I want to turn from that evil. I actually believe I can stop doing that thing. I actually believe I can turn from this behavior because I'm, I'm going to look to a greater treasure and be owned by that and let that move my behavior and that capture my desires, not this smaller thing over here. I believe that can happen because that's why Jesus died on the cross to redeem us and to rescue us. So we're not minimizing God's goodness. We're just making sure we're sober in the midst of it so that we can see it even in the midst of our evil actions. It's always good to listen and obey and it's never good to excuse evil or to call it something else. And finally, look again at what Samuel chooses to do about evil. We just read it, but look at verse 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Have you ever considered it to be sin against God to cease to pray for those who do evil? Have you ever considered that it is a sin against God to cease to pray for those who do evil? Samuel refuses such a notion. Samuel has listened so closely to God that his response to their evil actions is to pray for them. Why? Because praying for them is what is pleasing to God. Why? Because God's the one who can change their hearts. Why? Because Jesus is the greater treasure that they need to see over the other thing that they're pursuing that's evil. If Samuel didn't believe this, he would not be listening and obeying. So in the face of evil, we call it what it is. And we always look to God for redemption and rescue. Y'all hear that this morning? In the face of evil, call it what it is and do what Samuel did. And you look to God for the redemption and the rescue. Don't try to be the hero yourself. Don't try to be the hero yourself. You're not Jesus. Because what will inevitably happen is you will take liberty with things you should not take liberty with. You turn to the Lord. You listen and obey and you pray for those who are doing evil. And you lead them in the way, the, the way that Samuel did with the Israelites. We're going to take the supper. And as we do, 
Uh, turn over to Luke chapter 9. Doesn't that just blow your mind this morning? Listen and obey. <laughs> it's funny that we see these things. I see it playing out in the life of Samuel, and I'm like, oh, I want that so bad. I want to move in that manner. I want to encourage others to do that. We can be so distracted because we don't consider what we've been called to. As we take the supper this morning, it's important for us to consider Christ. This is always about Christ. If we ever preach a sermon where we don't get to the part about Jesus, you should probably ask us, hey, where's the part about Jesus? What, what happened there? And what we've seen this morning is that what, we have been, what has been lavished upon us in Jesus is, is the entire encouragement behind why we would ever care about doing anything for anybody else in their life of sin. Because you yourself are a sinner. You can relate. You can look at them and say, I know why you're doing that because you're not treasuring Jesus. And I have to show you, Jesus is infinitely more worthy than anything you'll give your life to. So anytime we look at the judges and anytime we look at the kings, what we see is a shadow. On their best day, all the leaders of Israel, on their best day, they point toward Christ, who is the fulfillment of the shadows and the previous figures that they represent. Uh, I want to read chapter uh, verses 23 through 27 in Luke 9. And just as I read them, um, the band can go ahead and make their way up. I want to read them as a preparation for the supper, as words that we need to hear so that we can listen and that we can obey. And I want you all to remember that Scripture says that anything worth listening to is worth thinking about. God says, when you hear these words, um, go think about them and I will give you understanding. I want to write over our exit door, um, think over these things and I'll give you understanding because if anything is worth listening to, it's worth thinking about. And these are some words I want us to think about as we prepare to take our supper this morning. Luke 9, verses 23 through 27. And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Some of us are too in love with the world this morning, and we really need to consider those words. It's really easy to fall in love with the world. It's not best. It's evil. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some, some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus will return. We take this supper in anticipation of that. And when he does, my hope is that he will find none of us ashamed of his words. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, as we saw your mighty work in the life of Samuel this morning, I pray that we would be eager to be used in a like manner, that we would benefit others, that we would encourage others. I pray that fathers are encouraged this morning and how they might lead their families. Lord, I pray that 
if anyone here is treasuring anything other than Jesus, anything above Jesus, that we would repent. Pray that as we take the supper, we would do so soberly, knowing that there's a wrong way to take it. If we're ashamed of your words, (coughs) it is hugely important that we repent and that we confess that sin to you and that we look to you for redemption and for rescue. You are great, greatly to be praised. Lord, I am thankful for King Jesus, who is the fulfillment of your promises. I'm thankful that in Christ we are blessed immensely, and I'm thankful that we can take this supper and we can approach your throne because he has made a way for us to do this. So as we take this supper, Lord, help us to do so humbly. Help us to do so in anticipation of your return, and help us to do so considering soberly if we are ashamed of your words or not. We love you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.